I ask you to bear with me, to pay careful attention the first ten minutes or so, because we're going to lay the foundation for what we're going to say. The lesson tonight is simple and very practical, though you're not going to believe either are true when we first start. And if you follow this point that we make at first, hopefully we can drive home our point clearly. So I just ask you to bear with me. I would also say that what we're about to say is good information to write in your Bible when you come to your daily Bible reading in Ezra 4, to write there to... To remember these various dates of these characters. Sometimes I'm asked a question about Ezra 4 and how all that fits chronologically. And I love that question for two reasons. Uh, I love that question, first of all, because it shows a lot of insight. It shows a lot of insight into the biblical story that people know enough to know, hey, what's going on here? We have this king mentioned, that king. What time span does this cover? They have read enough and thought enough to try to see how it all fits together. I love it from that perspective. And then I just love explaining what, what Ezra 4 does is it shows those people who return from Babylonian captivity facing constant opposition. They face constant opposition. There are little things, there are few things that are done in God's work that do not face opposition. And the Jews who return from Babylonian captivity face constant opposition. For tonight we're going to deal with a time frame that goes a hundred years. Cyrus made the decree in 539 that stated at the beginning of Ezra, in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, that all the Jews who wanted to could return and rebuild the temple. He gives them permission to rebuild the temple. However, when they get back, there are discouragements. There are discouragements from within. There is opposition from without. And in response to discouragements from within and the opposition from without, the people just quit the work. They quit the work. They don't build during the time after the first few days of Cyrus. They stop the work and it stops till the time of Darius, who is king of Persia from 521 to 486. Persia is the most powerful nation in the world at this time. And so these names I'm putting on the board may not mean much to you. But they were the most powerful men in the world at the time they lived. That's also going to be important to our point. They faced opposition during the days of Cyrus, during the days of Darius, during the days of Ahasuerus. You know Ahasuerus better by the name Xerxes. He is the king of the book of Esther. And they faced opposition during the days of Artaxerxes. Now again, 
Those dates written in your Bible can be helpful when you read those sections to know what's going on. What what do I mean by opposition? What are we laying the foundation for to build upon here? We're going to focus on the reign of these last kings, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes, king from about 464 to 423, and the Bible tells us during his days, there was a letter written against Jerusalem and against the Jewish people, and that letter is described in verses 8 through 16 of Ezra 4. That letter emphasizes that you don't need to allow Jerusalem to be built. That's the issue on the table at that time. Don't let rebuilding on the city of Jerusalem to go on. In verses 12 and 13, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and are repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay custom They will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the king. The king's made millions of dollars from revenue, from taxes, from tribute in this area. And to tell them you're going to lose all tax money from this area got their attention. And that's what they claim. And Artaxerxes gives his response in verse 17 through 23. In verse 23, in verse 21, the king's response is, issue a decree to make these men stop that this city may not be rebuilt until the decree is issued by me. When Artaxerxes gets this letter about these people are building this city and the city's often been the site of rebellions, it's been the site of trouble, And you're going to lose all tax money from this region. The king says, have them stop building. And there were some who were all too excited to enforce that decree. As you see in verse 23, they went in haste to Jerusalem and stopped them by the force of arms. So with armed guards, they're coming up and making them cease building on Jerusalem by the king's decree. Now again, these are our four Persian kings who are important in this text of Ezra 4. And the situation is the complaint about the Jews and the answer from Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes says, building on the cities to cities. Everybody with me right now. Everybody here. A couple of heads said you're with me. But that's all it took in 2 Kings 9. A couple of people were with a Jehu and they threw down Jezebel. So we can, we can make it with just a couple. Why is this important? Let's turn to Nehemiah 1. 
Nehemiah 1 is going to be on the other side of this news. He is a Jew who is still in the land of captivity, but who cares deeply for his brethren. He he cares deeply. In verse 2, when Hanani, one of his brothers, and some men from Judah came and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Here is a Jew who is still in the land of captivity, who hears the report of what has happened after the king's decree. When he hears the people are in distress and reproach, he is truly overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with discouragement. And what he does with that in verse 4 of Nehemiah 1 is he goes to the Lord in prayer. In verse 4, it came about after I heard these things, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He mourned, he wept, he fasted, he prayed. And the contents of his prayer are described in verse 5. Biblical prayer usually begins with emphasizing the greatness, the awesomeness of God. Nehemiah 1 is no exception. You, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear now be attentive. And your eyes be open to the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments nor statutes nor ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 8, remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. Now he's about to quote scripture. Pay attention sometimes to how frequently prayers of scripture quote scripture and quote God. You commanded your servant saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and to make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. This is Nehemiah's prayer. And he asked for compassion. 
before this man. Look at verse 11. Who is this man? Now, if you just had Nehemiah 1 to this point, you will not figure that out. You'll not figure out who this man is. You notice if you look at verse 1 of Nehemiah 1, that the Bible says it was the 20th year, but it doesn't define that 20th year. 20th year of what? It was the 20th year. Well, chapter 2, verse 1, defines what 20th year meant. And it will tell us who this man is. In chapter 2, verse 1, it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world, Artaxerxes. He's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He is the man, and he is the king that he will have to go through in order to get permission to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. That would be intimidating enough because of his power, because he is the most powerful man in the world. Nehemiah is a lowly cupbearer, a lowly servant of the king, though it was a respected position. It was not a position like the king had. And he has to ask permission for the most powerful man in the world to rebuild the city. And this is the man, the very man who gave the command in the first place for all work on Jerusalem to stop and to cease. Great moments in history are often prepared for by months and maybe years of prayer. Great moments in history are often prepared for by months and years of prayer. If you look in Nehemiah 1 in verse 1, it happened in the month Kislev. Kislev would have been comparable to our mid-November through mid-December. But as you open Nehemiah 2 verse 1, it is the month Nisan which is comparable to our March or April. What I'm trying to suggest is the kind of prayer that Nehemiah prayed in verses 5 through 11 of Nehemiah 1. He has been praying those prayers for four months, waiting for this moment, waiting for this moment of truth where he has an audience before the king. Four months of prayer to prepare for this moment. And he comes into the king's presence, and he is sad in the king's presence. And the king says to him, why are you sad? 
You're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah is rightly uneasy about this. If the king was sad, you better be sad. But if the king is happy, you better not be sad. Unless you have got a really good reason. And so now is all he has prayed for and all he has waited for this moment. And Nehemiah's answer in Nehemiah 2 verse 3 is interesting. He said, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Notice in Nehemiah 2 verse 3 that Nehemiah does not mention the city of Jerusalem. Maybe it's not even time to mention that city yet. He just mentions the fact that the city of his fathers is desolate and its gates are consumed by fire. He is speaking to the very man who is responsible for that condition. He's speaking to the man who's responsible for that. And the king says to him in verse 4, what would you request? You may have prepared for a great moment. With months of prayer. But we may still need more prayer. In verse 4. Nehemiah said I prayed to the God of heaven. I'm sure that was a prayer that the king never knew he uttered. I have often had people come to me. About complex questions. And things that are very difficult to explain in a minute or two, but that is all that we had to talk about this particular problem. And I have prayed a prayer unknown to them. Give me insight and help me to say something that will help this person. I'm sure you've done that too. That is the situation Nehemiah's in. I prayed to the God of heaven. But then he speaks to the king in verse 5. If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He's asking for permission to rebuild the city. The city that the king demanded that they cease building. Let me go back. The king trusts him. The king knows him. Let me go back. Let me lead this particular work. In verse 6, the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will the journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river. And they were the opposition. They were the ones that had written that letter against the Jews in the first place in Ezra 4. He says in verse 7, Let letters be given me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the forest, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. The man who has issued the decree in Ezra 4 that all work on the city stop now says go back and rebuild. Now that Is truly amazing. There are times in my life where I feel that I am doing well and in very fervent prayer. There are times in my life where I am trying and prayer is coming with great difficulty. And at those moments, I try to think, why am I struggling? Why am I struggling being fervent in prayer? And I am afraid that sometimes it's because of a nagging suspicion deep in my heart does this really do me good? Particularly if we're praying for somebody interceding for someone to walk closer to God or interceding, praying for someone else. We think to ourselves, or I think to myself, that person is a free will. They have to decide what's right. They have to decide what's wrong. What good does it do to pray in those situations? This chapter is evident. This story is evidence of the power that God has to change people's hearts and change their directions via prayers. The same king who makes the decree, you stop building the city, is the same king that gives Nehemiah personal permission to go back and rebuild that city. He also, if you know the story of Ezra well, and this happened a few years before, but in Ezra chapter 7, sent Ezra back to teach the law of the Lord. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 that the heart, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. 
Kings were probably the most stubborn of men, the most self-willed of men. They were the men who gave decrees and everyone's life was changed. Everybody has to do what they say. They don't have to listen to what anybody says. And yet the Bible says of even their hearts, they're like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and He turns them whichever way He wants them to go. God can use these kings in spite of their free will in spite of their own decisions, God can use them to accomplish His purposes. In the lesson, a simple lesson, in a practical lesson, It's just the power of prayer. We may not figure out how God does change a person's heart in response to our prayer. How God changes a person's circumstance. How God brings somebody in that person's life to make them think about Him. Or change their attitude toward Understand how that happens. But we know God has done it. And this is the thing that I remind myself of sometimes when I struggle with this. Not only do I see biblical illustrations of this, but I've seen illustrations worked out. That people who stood in the way of the gospel that you have to go through to get permission to speak the word in a certain circumstance, that you pray about it, that you ask God's help, and for no unexplained reason, they make a 180, and now they're totally behind. Does that happen 100% of the time? No. But it's happened, and it's happened quite a few times in my life. And so the basic lesson is this. To keep praying. To keep praying even when we don't understand how it works. How God responds. To keep praying. To keep trusting. And to believe that God will do what He promised. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God. You are all powerful. The Cyruses. The Dariuses. And Artaxerxes of human history are quickly forgotten. But you have always been and you will always be. You made even the most powerful of men and you can use them to accomplish your purposes. Lord, we walk by faith And not by sight. 
Sometimes we see no answer to our prayers at all. And we never can figure out exactly how those answers have come. But Lord, help us to keep walking by faith. To keep walking by faith. And walking by trust. And keeping, help us to keep pouring out our heart to you. And begging your help. And leaning on your strength. In whatever situation. We are weak. And you are strong. And we each stand here before you. Helpless. Totally dependent upon you for help. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive me, forgive us for sometimes our lack of trust. And help us to put all our hope in you. We praise you for your love for us as shown in Jesus, your son. Amen. For those of you who are not in Christ, who need to follow him, if you need to repent of your sins and be baptized in Christ, we want to help you. And I am sure that there are people around you who are praying that you will do exactly that as we stand and as we sing.